We are actually going to be starting a series today in the book of Ephesians. Um, you know, I know that uh, some of you guys are still kind of in that transitional period of junior high. Uh, you guys have been now here for a couple months, uh, but still kind of getting used to things. And I just want to make you guys aware, this is kind of how we normally do things, is we take a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The last handful of weeks, you guys have heard, uh, you know, from, from Tate, and he's been teaching you guys. And then there was one Sunday where we watched pa- Pastor Jack on the main sanctuary. But our normal Sundays together will look like kind of what they look like uh, today. Uh, we're going to start in the first chapter of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, uh, and in the first verse. And then we're going to work our way over the next few months together and see what God wants to speak to us. Uh, This is the best way to learn about God's word and learn what God wants for your life, okay? Have you guys ever heard of Bible roulette before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Bible roulette. Do you guys know what roulette is? Okay, it doesn't really matter. But this is Bible roulette. All right, I'm gonna illustrate it for you right now. You guys ready? All right, well, if you turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 48, and then uh, next Sunday we'll go... Uh, why don't you guys turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 12. It's kind of picking a different passage each time you look at the Bible. Some people, and you might be one of them, read your Bible that way. You're like, I don't know what to read, so I'm just going to wake up the morning. I know I should read my Bible, and so I'm just going to open up to a random passage, and right, it's God's word, so it'll speak to me. Uh, that is a bad way of trying to learn God's word. Is it God's word? 100%. Are you going to learn anything? Probably not much. Why? Because, I mean, imagine doing this. Imagine watching a movie. Okay, you're like, ooh, there's this new movie out, uh, I'm going to watch it, and then you start on the 50-minute mark, and then watch it for 10 minutes to the hour mark, and then the next day, you start on the 20-minute mark, and then watch for 15 minutes to the 35 minute. and imagine you do that for a week. You know how confused you'd be? You'd be like, you, it would be like a puzzle that you can never actually put together, and so for the Bible, it is important that we start uh, within the beginning of a letter or historical account uh, or, or uh, a poetical book, and you work your way through it. Why? Because that's how it was written, right? Like we're, we're going to be reading the, the letter to Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. He didn't write them like the last part and then send them the middle part and then, and then the first part. No, it was in order. And so these chapters and verses are structure for you and I to understand what is being communicated, right? We do Bible study together here on Sunday mornings because we want to hear from God. We are trusting that this is God's word to us. And it's not a magical book that just because you open it, uh, you're going to somehow begin to be more holy. No, holiness and godliness comes as you understand the word of God. And so it's important that we do this. All that to say, uh, we're diving into the book of Ephesians today. Now, we will be beginning in chapter one, but we need to have some context uh, and an introduction into what is this book. Because there's different kinds of books of the Bible. Like I mentioned, there's historical accounts or if you ever read the Gospels or the book of Acts, it's like a, like a storyline. Well, the book of Ephesians is a letter. It's a six-chapter letter from Paul to a place called Ephesus. Everyone say Ephesus. Hence, the name of the letter is Ephesians, okay? Now, it's become a book of the Bible, but when Paul wrote it and when they received it, 
They knew it was God's word, but it wasn't a book within the 66 of the Bible. Now, it became that as they gathered together, okay, this is God's word, and they had their criteria and came to that conclusion uh, to what we have today. But this was an actual letter written by an actual man received by actual people. And Ephesus was a city in the area of what was anciently known as Asia Minor. Okay, if you guys are taking notes, you might want to note that down. As you guys are taking notes today, you'll notice there's no guided notes. We will periodically and uh, sometimes still do those guided notes. Sometimes we'll have a few weeks where we do them, maybe a week where we don't. Those are like practice. Those are to train and to teach you how to take notes on your own. And so today, you guys will be taking notes on your own. We're hoping that over the last few weeks, as, as I know Tate's provided some of those guided notes, and if, we, if you've been with us on Wednesdays, that that will serve, okay, I know I'm supposed to write this down. This seems like something important. This is a point, or this is a topic, or this was on the screen. I know I don't have to write down the whole verse. I'll just write down the reference. And so uh, you might want to note down Asia Minor. Okay, this was an area that is no longer known as Asia Minor. Now it's in what is modern day Turkey. Uh, it is a country in the Middle East. Yes, there is a country named Turkey. I don't know of any con- countries named chickens, but, but that's another topic for another day. Um, Turkey is a Middle Eastern nation. At that time, it was known as Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus was a province, a city within that region, okay? It was a Roman capital city, a big deal. Uh, it, w- it was a large city that had much pagan and false worship. Have you guys ever heard of the Temple of Diana? Uh, the Temple of Diana, Diana is a false god or goddess that uh, ancient cultures have worshipped and some might still do. Uh, but the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world in that first century. Uh, this would have been a, a place where people traveled to and so... Uh, Jesus being introduced by Paul would have been something very foreign to their understanding. You can note down for later study, Acts chapter 19. I want to challenge you guys this week, if you're not coming to camp with us, because we'll have other stuff for you to read at camp, or the week after, if you are coming to camp, read Acts chapter 19. Why? This is where Paul first meets the, the, the Ephesians. Uh, This is when he comes to the city of Ephesus. There are no believers there. Um, There are believers, but they are uh, uneducated as to the ways of the Lord. And so Paul meets them and begins to teach them rightly. And uh, he is there for three years. And this is significant uh, because Paul very rarely spent this amount of time with a certain group of people. Have you guys ever looked at the back of the maps uh, in your Bible and seen like Paul's journeys and travels? He went to a lot of places. He only spent usually a few weeks, if that, at certain cities. And we know that he wrote to these different churches. Ephesus, he spent three years. How spoiled are they? Imagine having Paul uh, come and teach you uh, on the daily basis uh, the things of God. They were, they were beyond spoiled, probably the most spoiled of the early churches because they, they were with him. He was with them. And so uh, we know that, that, that no doubt Paul had this close relationship with them. And so that's important for us to, to keep in mind as, as we think about what this letter is. Um, we also want to note down the 
the origin of where Paul wrote this letter, because that's going to give us insight as well. We know from two different places in the book, in the first verse of the third chapter and the fourth verse of the first chapter, uh, sorry, first, I don't know why I'm saying it like that, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 and 3-1, we see that Paul introduces himself as a prisoner because he was in Roman custody. Now, there is a time later in his life that he's going to be in like real deep prison. Uh, This time he's on a version of house arrest. He's at a house that's not his own, but like a Roman guard is always with him. He's like chained to him. Uh, So it's not great. You can't like go to the store and can't do things you normally would. You can't go visit people, but people can come to you and, and help supply meals and things like that. Kind of a strange ancient thing, but Paul's got a lot of time on his hands. It's a few years after he had spent that time with him in Acts chapter 19. And so he's writing back to them. This is where we believe that Paul wrote Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. They're known as the prison epistles or the prison letters. If you ever see that word epistle in your Bible, uh, that is the word letter. It's kind of a weird word that we don't normally use. It's It's just a fancy word to say that Paul wrote a letter to these people, okay? Does that make sense? Uh, Also note down Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Why this verse? Well, this is at the end of the book, and it gives us insight into the man who delivered the letter, right? They didn't have uh, email back then, and they didn't have uh, the post office, okay? You had to get someone to deliver a message to someone else. And uh, this man, Tychicus, I'm going to say Tychicus. Uh, Is there anyone named Tychicus here? Okay, didn't, didn't think so. Uh, maybe we'll just pick one of you and start calling you Tychicus and Ty for short or something. Uh, anyway, Ephesians 6.21 tells us that it was most likely Tychicus who was the one who hand-delivered this letter to uh, the Ephesians. Now, last, last couple things I want you to n- just keep in mind, and this is kind of the right introduction to the book. So this is going to be applicable uh, for our understanding within the following weeks and months that we're going to be learning about the book of Ephesus. So many believe that this letter to the Ephesians was actually a little bit more broad than just for the Ephesians. Many think that this was a letter that was to be circulated among other churches there in that area of Asia Minor. We know from church history that there is also the church of Laodicea, which appears also in the book of Revelation uh, amongst the seven churches there in that region. And many people believe, and I tend to agree, that this letter was most likely uh, to be circulated, meaning that uh, when they received that letter, they would read it amongst the congregation there in Ephesus. Uh, But then the next week, they would then hand that letter to the Laodicean church. And then they would, that's what they would read, and they would, they would uh, kind of learn about the teaching and the doctrine that Paul was seeking to communicate to them. The reason why is because though Paul was very personal with the Ephesians, because he spent how many years with them? Does anyone remember? Three years. So he would have really knew these people. But there's nothing personal really in the letter. Uh, what we're going to find is that they're actual general truths that could apply to any church. And so that's why it's kind of exciting for you and I to start this letter, because there are no personal problems addressed. You know, if you ever read the book of Galatians or 1 Corinthians, you'll be reading, and he starts like naming names 
And you're like, what are these names? Now, there's still truths in there for us to draw out, but he's addressing personal problems within that city. There's none of that within this letter to Ephesians. There are really truths for every believer. And so you and I can really read this today uh, in a very personal way because these truths that we're going to find are for our lives. This is probably the best way uh, for me that I've found to kind of outline this book. Uh, this always helps me before I study a book of the Bible. It's like, okay, how is it laid out? Like, what's the structure? Um, and I want you guys to note this down, the fact that there's this balance between doctrine and duty. Does anyone know what the word doctrine means? Yeah. So, so that's where kind of the, the, the root word is there. Uh, but, but think a little bit more, more broad than that. Solomon. Yeah, okay, learning, right? Teaching, instruction. The fact that the Bible has doctrine. Now, people can get doctorates or uh, uh, things of like that. It's idea of learning, instruction. And so the Bible has instruction for us. And so what we find in the first half of the book of Ephesians, 1 through 3, is what God has done for us. Doctrine, teaching. This is what God has done. But then in a different way, in the last three chapters, in Ephesians 4 through 6, we're going to see what, what we should do as a result of what God has done for us. And that's for, when it gets very uh, personally applicable. And so the first three chapters, we're going to be focused on really good, hearty, healthy truth. And we're going to need to know that. And this order is important. Paul didn't do this by accident. It's always a dangerous thing to begin to do without knowing. You ever started to do something without actually knowing what you're doing and you messed the whole thing up? I know I've experienced that, whether it's uh, trying to put something together that I didn't think I needed the instructions only to realize I needed the instructions. Uh, so Paul, and what we're gonna begin today, begins to talk about this is what God's done for you. And then we're gonna find towards the uh, second half of the book, this is what you should do as a result of that. Okay, does that make sense? All right, cool. Well, before we get into the actual text and begin to work our way through it uh, for today, I actually want to show you guys a video. So there's an organization called The Bible Project. Um, they are not 100% trustworthy. Uh, it's hard to find almost any organization that's 100% trustworthy. Uh, I don't agree with all of the things they put out, so this is your little disclaimer, okay? You always want to be discerning anything you watch, anything you read, anything you listen to. Uh, you always want to compare it to the Word of God. However, this organization called the Bible Project has really helpful tools in regards to uh, videos that show a outline of books of the Bible. Uh, and they do it in a very like um, informative but like engaging way. And so it's about an eight-minute video, so it, but it's, and it's going to talk about a lot of content. But I think it's important for us to see and understand as the basis as we begin uh, this, this book together, okay? Eyes to the screen. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. 
In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem, where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purposed to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says, that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus's resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed 
the two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's Spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears, and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one. And one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus' new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's Spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the Spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the Spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. 
these are beings and, and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus' people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus' body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. All right. Sweet. Hey, you can clap. So now, since we saw that video, we can just close our Bibles and go home. We, we just went through the whole book of Ephesians. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I know there's a lot in that video, but I think it is really helpful for us to have kind of this, this overview of what was going on. Do you see where it talked about, right, God's story in, in chapters one through three? And that's what we're going to begin today. And that leads in to our story. Okay, how, how, do, how do we then fit into God's story and how do we begin to live that out? And so you can, you can find those videos on YouTube. It's just called Bible Project. Um, and every book of the Bible has like that overview. And it's sometimes helpful just to start. However, there are some of them that are not um, entirely accurate. So again, just be, be cautious and, and put everything to what the scripture actually says, Okay. Why don't you stand with me, and uh, we're going to get into this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's see. Let's see if my clicker wants to work. Kevin, can you look? Yeah. Uh, go to the next one. There we go. Let's see. All right, we're good. So today we're just going to be going with the first six verses uh, just to get our free feet wet, okay? And then and the next time that we study Ephesians, what verse do you think we're going to start with? Seven. Yeah, verse 7, all right? And we're going to go through it uh, methodically. We're going to go through it. Um, we're not going to look at every single word all the time, uh, but we're going to seek to pull out the general truths that are in the scriptures, okay? Make sense? Okay. Bear with me. I ate a mint while we watched the video, so now I got to chew it before we read God's word. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray together. Father, we are here this morning because we do truly believe that these are your words to us. Though through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote them to the city of Ephesus, you have sought to preserve this word 
that we might learn, that we might glean, that our hearts and our lives might be changed by it. Lord, we just ask right now, if there's any spots in our heart that just is kind of apathetic, not caring, would you stir us up for love and good works and for uh, the attentive, attentiveness of your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, you can be seated. Well, we, uh, we kind of went through some of that introduction, and so uh, if you look at verse 1 and 2, it's, it's the typical type of greeting. We learn uh, that Paul's the writer. We learn that Ephesus is the audience of those who are receiving it, uh, and that's what we just went over before our portion of Scripture. And then I want you to look now starting in verse 3, okay? And we're just going to kind of look at uh, this first chapter quickly. So if you look at verse 3 and then move your eyes down the page all the way to verse 14. So that is the first chunk or section, uh, as you maybe remember in the video. It's actually a Jewish poem. Uh, from verse 13 to verse 14 is a continual thought. Uh, actually, in the Greek language, it's actually one sentence. It's kind of a trip. Look at verse 3 to 14. Now, in our English, it's many sentences. Thank the Lord. However, in the original language, it's one sentence, which is very abnormal. It's the longest Greek sentence in the New Testament. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that, that this isn't your average type of um, doctrine or instruction. It's actually in a poetical form, but we will not get that in the English language. And so we're just going to then learn from what is being said. Uh, but we do need to, to take note of that. And then now look at verse 15. Okay, that's the end of the poem, but the beginning of Paul's prayer. And from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter, verse 22, uh, Paul shares with the Ephesians his prayers for them. Now that's for future studies. We are first looking at just the beginning portion of this Jewish poem. Now, what is this all about? Well, it's within this first section that Paul goes through God's role within our salvation. And so we're actually going to find in this poem, verses 3 to 14, a picture of the Trinity and what role or part that God the Father played, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yes, one God, but they played different roles within our salvation. The fact that you and I are going to be in, in eternity with God forever, uh, it's, it is all because of what God has done for us that we're going to be able to do that. But what are the specifics? And so we're going to be looking at that today. I kind of want you to look at this first section as setting the tone for the rest of the letter. Have you guys ever been in a movie, and maybe it typically happens on ones that are based on a true story, that in the beginning of the movie, there's those kind of beginning credits, uh, those beginning uh, uh, lines of kind of that, that prep the movie um, that say, you know, this is the context of what you're about to watch, and then boom, that opening scene kind of pops open and, you know, the movie begins. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is kind of that. Verses 3 to 14 really set the tone, set what, okay, what are, what are we talking about here for the rest of the letter? And so it's important that we get this right. And so 
today, uh, for the sake of time, because we had that longer introduction, because it's the first message of the, of the series, um, we're going to be only looking at four verses, and specifically those uh, verses from three through six. What we're going to find in these verses is we're going to start with the role of the Father, like I said, in our salvation. What did he do? We're saved, but what did God do? Next time that we study the word, we will then finish the poem looking at what Jesus's role was and the Holy Spirit's role. That's the Trinity. And we're going to see that it is in the fullness of what the Bible calls the Godhead uh, that we can know and rejoice that we will forever be with him. Okay? So I want you to look there in your Bibles at those few verses, three through six. You'll notice something repeated. If you look at the end of verse three, are you guys looking in your Bibles? Look at where it says in Christ at the end of verse three. Then again, in verse four, it says in him. Then you'll see a, a point in verse four where it says before him. Then you go down to the last verse, verse six of our section. You'll see it says in the beloved. Now, though it's phrased in different ways, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, they are synonymous with one another. Do you know what that means? They're synonymous, interchangeable. In him is talking about Jesus. In Christ is talking about Jesus. In the beloved is talking about, come on, it, uh, man, that, I, gotta, I gotta hear you guys. So in Christ is talking about who? Okay, in him is talking about who? In the beloved is talking about who? And it is the fact, okay, that you and I as Christians, more specifically, are to be in him. And that is honestly an, a more accurate description of what it means to be a Christian. Christian, that term, like I've shared with you guys before, is, was actually a derogatory term that enemies of, uh, of Christ gave the early Christians. Now, they took it as a badge of honor because it means essentially little Christ or Christ-like. And so that's kind of how that got cut on. But really, more than just being Christians, we are to be found in Jesus. Now we do that, uh, of course, by not only believing, but receiving what he's done. And what happens at the point of salvation for someone is that they are then placed in Jesus. Now this all happens within the spirit realm, ultimately in heaven, that our position as Christians is in Jesus and that is the best place to be. I'm telling you guys, okay? But that's going to kind of be the, the theme of this poem is, is what happens for someone who is found in him. That's why the title of our message is In Him, okay? And it's referring to Jesus. Now, specifically today, we're talking about, well, what, did, what was God the Father's role? Well, you can note down first, we find in verse 3 that he, being the Father, blesses us and he loves to do so. If you look in your Bibles in verse three, we find there that Paul brings up the fact that for someone, the person who is in Jesus, in Christ, and you are not naturally in Christ, just because you are in church doesn't mean you are in Jesus. Does that make sense? 
There is a difference. You could be in church and not in Jesus. There are plenty of people on campus today, and I'm going to go as far as to say there are people in this room, you're in church, but you are not in Jesus. You're like, well, how do I get there? You ask them. Ask them to be in your life. You give your life to them. You repent of your sins. The gospel, you confess them to them. You believe in your heart what he did for you on the cross, and you receive the gift of eternal life. And then you'll be in Jesus. You could do that right now, even as I'm speaking, in your own heart and your own mind. There's no special prayer. There's no contract to sign. But for those who are in Jesus, you will experience the blessings of God. If you look there in verse 3, it says that in Jesus, in, this, in these heavenly places, the idea is not on earth, that every spiritual blessing is found. So the text tells us that these spiritual blessings are found in heaven. So let's talk about the contrasting idea there. If spiritual blessings are in heaven then where are physical blessings? On earth, right? It's not a trick question, on earth. And physical blessings come from God too. The difference about physical blessings is that God does not give us every physical blessing. Every spiritual blessing, yours. Physical blessing, not so. What, what are some physical blessings? What do you guys think? Yeah, Eli. Breathing? Yeah, the fact that you even have breath in your lungs is a blessing from God. For sure, yeah. Horses, totally, right? Animals, and especially big ones you can ride. Blessing from God, physical, yeah. Healing, yeah, totally. Uh, God does physical healing, and that could be a, a blessing for sure, yeah. Totally, right? So, so that, I, actually, I think that would fall more into the spiritual blessing, right? Which, which is ours, which we have access to. So let's move on to that. If those are physical blessings, she said prayer, right? That would be a spiritual blessing. That's not a physical thing. What are some other spiritual blessings? Yeah. Huh? Wisdom? Totally. You in the back. The Holy Spirit? <laughs> Definitely. That's probably the, the, the best spiritual blessing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Eternal. Yeah, that, that actually, that, sorry. Holy Spirit. Well, they kind of go together. Uh, eternal life, that's a spiritual thing. That's not a physical reality, though it has and will have physical implications. Now, why are we talking about this? Because this is an awesome thing. Every spiritual blessing, peace, joy, salvation, prayer, nothing is withheld from you. Physical blessings, yeah. Sometimes you don't have health. Money, that's a physical blessing from God. Everything good is from God, and so anything that you have good is ultimately from God, even if you don't believe in him. But do you have every physical blessing that you want? No. But you do have every spiritual blessing, and the, the, the crown jewel ultimately is eternal life. I love this perspective of the Lord. See, God wants to give you everything he can, everything that is good for you. He doesn't hold back from you. Everyone look at me. God does not hold back. Physical blessings, yes. And that's for your, your own sake and your own growth and your own dependence upon the Lord. Imagine if you got everything you want. You'd be a spoiled brat, including myself, okay? And so we, we live through this life, but spiritual blessings, God says you have, you have complete access to everything I have 
regarding spiritual blessings. Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10 says, oh, sorry. There you go. Do Psalm 84, uh, verses 11. Verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord God will give grace and glory. And notice this line, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How, how often do we think of God in this light, in this perspective? And often we don't take advantage of it, right? We, we so focus on the physical blessings, and God's like, I got stuff that's going to go way beyond that. Because as good as physical blessings are, which they're a blessing, it's, it's, it's a benefit, they're temporary. But you see, the spiritual blessings, they are eternal. They are never-ending. And so God, I want you to have this picture. Imagine, imagine God in heaven with a pitcher, okay? Not like a pitcher, but like a pitcher, okay? Uh, and, and full of that are, are all these spiritual blessings, okay? Not physical, spiritual, like prayer, like peace, joy, things that are not physically tangible, love. God is always pouring out that pitcher of blessing. Now, we don't always experience it because sometimes we're so focused on the physical blessings that we remove ourselves from where God is pouring his spiritual blessing. Now, where is God pouring his spiritual blessings? Notice in verse three, in Christ. It is found in Jesus. But sometimes we get so focused on other things that we, that we step away from it and we're like, but where's all like the blessings from God? And God's like, it's still right there. You just got to put yourself in that position. But we need to have the understanding that this is God's heart for us. Psalm 34 verses 8 through 10 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord. O you, his saints, there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And so all the blessings are from God. Does that make sense? So that's the first thing, and that no doubt with the capstone of salvation. The second that we find in this text is that he chooses us. God chose you, specifically and we're told in verse 4 that he chose you before the foundation of the world. When do you guys think that is? What's that referring to? Before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 4. Someone want to take a stab at it? What, what, what is that referring to? Before the foundation. Cambria? Before creation. Okay, so what, what is the first verse in the Bible? You say it out loud. Right, so Genesis 1-1. So it is prior, if Genesis 1-1 is here, God says, it was here that I chose you over here. I, I was thinking, God, how weird is that? Before God created anything, God had a thought about you. And he said he chose you, and also the word uh, goes on. Look at verse five. He uses a similar word to choose, and he uses the word predestined. Now, that's a, that's a big, fancy Bible word. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the word predestined. Predestined. Now, it's a, it's a very, it's a simple word that, that means to decide beforehand. It goes in line with that idea of God choosing before the foundations of the world. That he was here and he chose you there. Now, some people get tripped up on this part because they begin to think, wait, if he chose me, are there others 
that he didn't choose? Well, well look, look, at the, look at what it says. He chose us in him. In him. So it wasn't that he only looked at you, but if he knew the future, he looked at those who would put themselves in the position of being in Jesus. And how do you put yourself in Jesus? You receive him, right? You, you, accept, you, you accept the gospel, you give your life to him, and now you're positionally in Jesus. So God, before the foundation of the world, looked and said, oh, they're in him. Uh, yeah, that's the one I want. And, and they chose you, he chose you, to be experience the adoption as sons and daughters of God by J Jesus Christ to himself. Now, it's kind of this trippy, right? Whenever you think about time, you can get real tripped up, right? You're like, whoa, so wait, like before the, and it can, you could just talk about it forever. But it's a really cool thing that basically indicates to us that salvation was not our idea. You did not choose him. He chose you. Now, that's not to say that you didn't have a part to play, but your part was very light. You just said yes. He did the heavy lifting, right? He did the work on the cross. It was his idea from the beginning. You just gave God the thumbs up, in a sense, in your life. You said, yes, I want that. And so you put yourself in the right position, but you didn't do anything. Right? For example, if I got you a, a gift randomly, let's just say I, I went to Isaiah in the back and I just said, hey, Isaiah, I, I, I got you this brand new iPhone 13. Now, there's no reason for me to get that for Isaiah. And so imagine him taking it from me. He takes the present of the iPhone 13 and he starts to boast about like, wow, did you see what I did? I took it. Can you imagine? Wow, I, I did a lot. Like, yeah, he bought the phone, but I had to take it. That's, that's like, you didn't do anything. You didn't buy it. You didn't wrap the gift. And so salvation is in that way where he, he was the initiator. He was the originator. He thought of this whole thing. And this should be wildly encouraging to us because you being in Jesus was not your idea. Listen, you did not find God. God found you and saved you. You simply put the obvious choice of like, yeah, I'm going to believe that. Yeah, I'll sign me up. I'll, I'll receive. Wait, Jesus takes all of my sin, forgives me. It's wiped clear. And I don't have to pay the punishment for sinning against an eternal God. And then wait, as well, I get to be in the family of God. I get to reap all the benefits of what it means to be a son and daughter of God. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That is an awesome, but all God's idea from the beginning. Now, why? Why did he do it? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Look at the end of verse five. It says, according to the good pleasure of his will. I'm gonna read it again. According, connected to the good pleasure of his will. How did he come? Why did he do that? Why did he choose to create? Why did he choose to create you? Why? Because he wanted to. He was not obligated. Do you guys know what it means to be obligated to do something? Yeah, it feels like right, you have to do it. No one like was pressuring God. God said, well, like, I guess I'll like 
create them and like choose them and bless them. No, this was something that God wanted. Regardless of how you might experience life at this moment, how maybe unloved or unwanted you feel, that is not how the God who created you feels about you, regardless of how you feel. This is what the word of God says. And so you and I are to take any feelings of maybe when we feel unlovable or unwanted or anything like this and say, well, what does God's word say? And we put our feelings under the word of God. And then the word of God is able to tell us, well, God chose us. Now, remember, it's not because you're special. It's because he wanted to. And the only reason you're chosen is because you chose to put yourself in Jesus. And so not only it was because he wanted to, but look at the first part of verse six. It says then two, it's, it's right. It, remember in the Greek, it's one running sentence. And so it just builds and builds and builds to the praise of the glory of his grace. Second reason, because it would be through your life that you would give God glory or the credit. This is why when you live your life for God and you say, God, whatever I'm doing today, I want people to give you praise and glory because of my life. I, I want to reflect you in a way that you get honor and, and, and pleasure because of what I did today for you. When we do that, we are literally fulfilling the very reason that God created us. Nothing else can fill the void. John chapter 15, verse 8 and 16 says this, By this my Father is glorified, that's what we're talking about, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Then a few verses later, he says, You did not choose me, wasn't your idea, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. He's not talking about produce here. He's talking about the result of your life living for the Lord, that that is your ultimate end. Why are you here on this earth? Why are you living at this moment? It's because you are to glorify. That is your chief end, to glorify God, to live for him. So when you begin to do things that are, are away from that, you will feel no satisfaction. You'll feel temporary fulfillment, but it's never lasting. The greatest amount of joy and peace you will have in your life is only found in Jesus. Finally, he not only blesses us, chooses us, but he accepts us. We find this in verse six. Now, don't get ahead of yourself if you've ever heard that phrase, um, you know, that, that God will accept you as you are. Uh, no, you are actually so unacceptable to God in your sinful state that he had to sacrifice Jesus on the cross. That's how unacceptable you are. However, you're like, oh, wow, this is a really encouraging message from Pastor Joel. <laughs> hey, listen, we need the truth. Yeah, it does hurt. However, God has now given us the opportunity, though we are unacceptable, to move ourselves in the position of being in him. Right, what does it say in verse six? You have been made accepted in the beloved. It's a reference to Jesus, in the beloved. 
The only reason that you are able to be accepted by God into his family, into heaven, into eternity, is because you put yourself with the right person. So that now when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't look at you for all your faults. Listen, you have faults. I have faults. I have sin. You have sin. And it is evil and opposing to God. And so if he was just looking at us, he would have to deal with our sin because God is perfect and holy and good. But now when he looks at you, if you are in Jesus, he sees Jesus. And did Jesus sin on earth? No, he didn't. He was perfect. He lived the life that you couldn't live yourself. This word accepted, you can know down, it means highly favored, highly favored. Luke chapter one, verse 28 says, and having come in, the angel said to her, this is the angel coming to Mary. This is the only other place this word appears. Rejoice, highly favored one or accepted one. Now, there was only one woman that God could pick to bring in the Messiah. He chose Mary. For you and I, we can all be highly favored ones as we put ourselves in the beloved. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John? And we're told that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. It wasn't a dove, it was like a dove. And then there was a voice that came from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's only one person that God the Father could say that about, and that's Jesus. And so the only reason that God can accept us is as we put ourselves in Jesus. And there's no other way about it. Now, these things are foundational to our faith. Some of these things might have been today things that you, okay, kind of knew, but maybe, maybe weren't completely aware of. But these three things he blesses us, chooses us, and he accepts us all in Jesus. This is God the Father's role, and this is good for us to think about, meditate. You know, the Bible says that we aren't just to read it, but we are to meditate. You know the difference? You could, you could read something and then forget about it. Meditating is reading in a way that you are getting it to go down deep, right? Where it's not just something that is lost, but something that is planted. And so, the more that we get or understand what he did for us, it will be, there's no other greater motivation that will motivate us into wanting to live for him. Because when you begin to realize, oh man, I got everything I need in Jesus. Man, he, before he created anything, he chose me. He was thinking about how he wanted me. Now, that doesn't cause us to realize, it shouldn't, at least if we understand it correctly, of what it's saying. Like, oh, wow, I am, I'm pretty good. Hey, God thought about me before he created anything. But what it should do is cause us, because we know ourselves. We know how not good we are. At least I do. I know what's in my heart. But I'm so thankful that Jesus does not just see that. He sees Jesus now in me. And that is the most transforming and changing thing possible. And so as we go throughout our week today, let's meditate on that. I'd encourage you, go back through this text and you read it for yourself of the things that we talked about 
and you just praise God and you rejoice in him. And listen, if you are not in him, it's time to get in him. It's time to receive the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. No longer just sitting in church. It's not going to save you. You will not go to heaven if you just sit in church. But you got to put your faith and trust in the Lord, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word. We do ask that, Father, that we wouldn't forget about this. We wouldn't neglect these truths. That as tomorrow comes and maybe we have struggles or difficulties, we would not be so quick to forget. But you would remind us of your great love for us. Because it is as we think about your love that it compels us to realize, why are we living for ourselves? There's nothing good in us. Nothing good dwells in our flesh. But you are good. You are God. And I just pray for these students, Lord. I pray for maybe any of those struggling with their um, just value, worth, that you'd remind them that it was Jesus who came and, and died for them so that they could experience fulfillment, peace, and salvation for eternity. And that he's always there for them. You're always there for us. And so, God, we look to you for these things this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.